Welcome back to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, where we bring you some of the best lectures from the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco. And in this case, through one of the last of three podcasts, we recorded with three of our sponsors. And this is Steve Levin. And Steve is a senior director. He is in charge of Virtual Human Twins and the founder of the Living Heart Project. He works at the Soul Systems, and we heard a lot about digital twins from him at the conference and we go into more depth as to what that can mean for orthopedics and digital surgery in the future. Please enjoy the conversation. Welcome back to a special edition of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. My name is Stefano Bini. I'll be the coach today for this conversation we're having with uh, Dr. Stephen Levine. We're very excited about this interview. Dr. Levine works at Dassault System, not to be confused with the Dassault Aerospace Division, which is an amazing company that we'll hear more about in a minute. But they're very focused on 3D experiences, and this is how they see themselves, a 3D experience company. They've done insane stuff around human modeling. We'll hear more about it again from Dr. Levine, who is the director of, in fact, virtual human modeling at the Soul System. Welcome, Dr. Levine. Thank you, Stefano. Thank you for having me. You know, your presentation at DocSF on digital twins, I thought it got everybody really thinking about the applications that we can have. And you've had a long and storied history in this space. So let's go back a few years and tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to the space. Sure. Happy to. I'll give you a very quick flyover. You know, I think we were often very much products of our history. So I actually got my PhD many years ago in material science. And when I learned, I actually did computational modeling of basic materials, fundamentals. At the time, things like electronics and fiber optics were all being developed. This is pre-internet era. And I was studying how the atoms at the surface of the silicon chips and the defects in fiber optics that are going to need to stretch across the cable. So I learned how to model a materials behaved atom by atom and learned that the macroscopic properties were product to the microscopic properties. And so I learned to use computer tools to do that. That moved me ultimately into more biotech areas. So I spent some time at a startup here in San Diego that ultimately went public as a company called Accelerus, one of the leading suppliers of biotech and moved to Dassault System about now 17 years ago to try to help them achieve their vision of kind of creating a platform to really model the world. And many of your listeners probably haven't heard very much about my company, Dassault Systems. We're a 40-year-old, a multi-billion dollar software company that mostly provides software to the manufacturing areas, as you said, people that build commercial planes, but also MRI systems, bicycles, pretty much if you can, if you build it, we probably help you do what we used to call product lifecycle management, all the way from the idea, all the way to the manufacturing and use computer-aided design, computer-aided engineering. But what we really do, if you step back, is we provide, as you mentioned, what we call 3D experiences, basically allow you to build a functional model of some kind of machine or device on the computer and use it in its real world environment before you ever actually build it, build a virtual copy, what we call a virtual twin. Some people call it digital twin. We like to use the word virtual because in the books, we think about virtual reality. It's a really 3D representation, but our twins actually don't just look like the function. They actually behave like the function. And so my role... Let me stop you there because I think that leap of faith... The engineers tend to jump over and just assume we all understand what that means. But in reality, 
One of the things, I think you guys have a really phenomenal model of jet turbines. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because one of the issues of jet turbines is understanding when they break, you know, when there's a limit to these fans as they spin super fast at high speed, at some point they start to have failures and we don't want that to happen, right? So you guys right. are actually able to take three-dimensional image. They, it's like a picture, like a three-dimensional image. Like if you imagine a VR headset, I could look at that engine and then you've got the wherewithal to be able to make that engine actually spin, like those blades are exactly. spinning. And each yeah. of those modules in the software has a specific physical property. So you can calculate what's happening to it as it spins, right? Yes. Yeah. And that allows you to predict when that might be a problem and bring that in for... For maintenance. For maintenance. So what you're doing, you're saying, look, if a plane flies this many miles, bring it in. Well, we're actually going beyond that. So this idea of a virtual twin is each engine that's flying in the sky actually has a twin, another, as you say, a computational model, a physics-based model of that engine sitting on a computer in the lab. And the plate has sensors on that engine, which is giving you operating conditions, the temperatures, how many rotations it's done. That information is being fed to the computer model, which then recreates the environment And so you can calculate the stresses on the blades, what the lifetime prediction is going to be based on models that have been developed over decades to actually recreate the physical environment of that plane. And so you know when it needs to come in or before because you're actually recreating the actual environment. So the alternative is to go disassemble the engine, take every blade, stress it and see how it's doing and then put it back together again. And what you're saying is you can avoid that. Yeah. So you have to do that at the beginning. That's how you learn how it behaves. But once you capture that, and that's really what we're here to talk about is capturing that real world experience on an effective computer model. We can then build an understanding of how these materials fatigue over time. And so once we've tested it in the real world, we can then predict it in the virtual world. So 16, 15 years ago, I can't remember now, you join a company that has 25 years at that point of experience doing this, that being able to model the physical world, create very powerful, successful, billion dollars worth of successful technology to understand how the world works. And then they're asking you, hey, can we bring this into the biological world? Is that kind of what happened? Yeah, yes, as you say, About 15 years ago or so, the company, we decided to expand our horizons to go beyond helping people build just good products, but to actually help make a more sustainable world. We called it harmonizing products, nature, and life. So good products that help improve the world and improve human life. And so at the time, I was driving strategy for the simulation brand, this brand that develops the software that shows how to behave it. And here I was challenged to say, okay, now I have to simulate life. How would I do that? And so drawing on a little bit of my own personal experience, I thought, well, what's more representative than human life than the heart? And so we could actually simulate, build a virtual twin, like we do of say a jet engine or the entire jet of a human heart. Then we could give doctors and biomedical engineers this same level of tool where you can actually design treatments, you could introduce diseases, you could see how they progress, and then you can compare that to what happens in the real world. So we could move away from being dependent on animal models and testing in humans as much as we do and try to capture that experience in these virtual twins. And so I launched a project 
called the Living Heart Project to see if we can actually build a virtual twin of the human heart. A spoiler alert, you were successful and it made, I think, many senior, you know, science, all these crazy magazines, it, it was a big deal. Yes. And when you modeled it, just for our audience, just to get it, you actually had the vascularity, the innervation, the muscles, the valves, all the right. elements that go into making a heart function were built in. So I'm now assuming, taking the discussion we had earlier about the jet engine, that you could then stress this heart that you've built and see how it reacted. I presume you could then say, hey, if you make this particular version of this heart, if it does too much of this, the blood supply to this part of the heart is going to fail and this will lead to a heart attack. That kind of stuff. Exactly. Since it's based on basically the physical laws that govern our bodies by making changes, for example, introducing disruption to the electrical signals that goes through the Purkinje fibers that stimulate the cardiomyocytes. Well, that disruption then propagates through the function of the heart. And so the contraction of the muscles will be adjusted, the movement of the blood and pumping through the vascular system, all replicated on this virtual twin. So we have the flexibility to introduce all of that deviation, the same things that would happen in nature. So. You set out to solve the problem of modeling nature and wow, it's amazing, you're successful. And when tested, how well did your model behave? Well, of course, that's a very open-ended question. So as you might appreciate, I can't go into all the details here, but the reason I would say that I was successful where many others had approached this and built a lot of the foundational technology to be able to do this. But my approach was to not to go back and reinvent the wheel, but to actually see if I could get all those experts to actually work together. The mm -hmm. electrophysiologists with the people who are in tissue mechanics and hemodynamics and the engineers, the scientists, the doctors, let's all work against the same reference model rather than our own piece of a model. And so I kind of crowdsourced it, which meant that I had hundreds of different experts giving me a piece of what they knew to contribute to this. And then I give it back to them in a whole and said, now test it to see if this heart actually reproduces the phenomena that you study in your behavior. So I now have this group, which is now hundreds, probably more than thousands of people testing it across a vast range of different applications. And then, so it's consistently getting better and better as it gets more use. So much so that in fact, I'm a principal investigator or co-PI with the FDA on a project to actually turn the heart into an entire cohort of patients. We're replicating a clinical trial using the same inclusion criteria, but building virtual patients and then treating them and then helping the FDA to understand how they would evaluate that as augmentation enrichment to actual real data to reduce the number of patients they would actually need to do and to give them more resolution to understanding what's going on. It's the ultimate version of in silico trials. The question that I would then have is, eventually we'll come back to musculoskeletal care, but it's so fascinating. Okay. So that means that you must have somehow personalized the model to individual patients. And how did you, were you able, I mean, you can't exactly go and map their Purkinje fiber. So what is it, what variables were you able to adjust for for each individual patient? So, of course, this is the magic of building models is you want the simplest model that replicates the phenomena that you're interested in. So the approach that I took was to make the reference heart model, which, by the way, is a normal sort of healthy model so that you could then adapt it to any disease. So it's a reference state that everybody can build from. And it has all of that resolution, which you may or may not need. 
So if you're studying a valvular disease, you may not need to worry about how the electrical wave propagates through the heart. But if you're looking at an electrical system disruption, you may not worry about how the leaflets are flopping. So you can pull the piece or what we call a submodel, a piece of the heart out that you care about. And so, then, so just so this I say I'm focusing on the engine of the jet, not the fuselage or the tail. Right. Exactly. Right. Perfect. Yeah, exactly the analogy. And we use what we call boundary conditions. So we represent the rest of the body or the rest of the heart by what happens, the inputs and outputs, if you will. So you can adjust those for different conditions. And that gives you some degree of flexibility, but efficiency. So if it's an electrical problem, we kind of reverse engineer how the electrical system is going from the wave propagation. So we can mm-hmm. make measurements at different time intervals, different locations. So you pick landmarks and then you can reverse engineer from how that wave is propagated from EP measurements, et cetera. And then you can back calculate what the origin would be to give that wave propagation in that patient. And so there is really sort of two classes. Sometimes you want individual patients because you're trying to say, how do I help this particular patient? Or in the trial, what you're really looking for are populations. So people that present like this. So you want to represent as many people as possible. So you can represent an individual patient or a kind of an average set of patients that might represent. Right. So it's definitely... Taking advantage that there are some commonalities to certain disease processes that can be modeled into the heart. And anybody that has that disease problem probably has that commonality and therefore the impact will be X. Whereas if you don't have it, it'll be Y. That makes sense. However, personally, I wish you could just make a model of my own heart, know exactly when it's going <laughs> to fail. I remember once there was a picture, of, it was a cartoon, I think it was in New Yorker, this truck, delivery truck, delivering a heart to somebody at the front door. This person is looking very confused as, yes, you'll need this tomorrow. <laughs> like, uh, like, okay. Yeah. As I look out, we certainly have the ability to get to that point. The short answer is what we're proving through the heart project, and we can, we can get to, you know, orthopedics in a moment, musculoskeletal system. We've proven that if we collect the right data and we sort of work together, we do have the ability to actually understand how the human body works. It's not a mystery. It's a challenge, but it's not a mystery. So let's transition a little bit into the musculoskeletal system and how it functions. It sounds like it's probably a little simpler than it is to model a heart. We don't have nearly as many variable inputs. However, (laughs) our ability to move through space is actually why we even have a heart. So at some level, it's critical. So you talked a little bit about the modeling work you're entertaining, and let's talk about that for a little bit. Sure. As you might imagine, we actually, a lot of the work in what we call the biomedical space began with the musculoskeletal system. You know, in fact, it's far easier computationally. We're coming from machines. So the musculoskeletal system is much closer thinking like a material science. Hard bones are easier to model than soft, complex tissue of the heart. So we had done quite a bit of work on the musculoskeletal system. And so we do have computational tools to predict uh, device wear and things like that quickly. So what's been a challenge or maybe what was different in that space is the demands, uh, industry demands medically at the time were not as strong devices. The implants that were available were more or less meeting the need of the industry. It was at a much more scale up than say cardiovascular, where there was still to this day, cardiovascular disease is the number one killer. So there was more demand, if you will. But the ability to actually model about musculoskeletal system is actually quite advanced. So we've modeled 
knees, hips, shoulders, spine, more or less all of the physical parts of the body. The real question is, how do we use it? What problems would you like us to solve? Which is, of course, why I was pleased to come to DocSF and to learn where the state of the art is. Our robotics potentially could change the kinds of devices. There are more getting back to some of the technology that we're seeing, smarter devices that are able to report what's happening the same way that plane jet engine is telling you what's happening to it. There are no implants that can tell you what's happening to the implant. Therefore, with smarter devices, we can actually provide additional level of repair, maybe even making the body better than it was, particularly for people with handicaps, et cetera. The discussion we've had fits perfectly in that because going from understanding how a jet engine functions and you correctly told me it's not just about modeling the engine and running it through a system, it's about collecting data from the engine as it flies, sending that data into the system, understanding the impact that, that those stresses have on the device. It can clearly obviously translate into, hey, if you've got a sensor within a knee replacement, for example, what are the loads across that implant? How is that impacting it? How does those change in the way that device is, is responding to those loads? Is it coming loose from the bone? You can probably start seeing that way earlier than we can now. And the problem we're going to have in orthopedics to some extent is we don't know what we don't know. So having people like yourself come in and say, by the way, this is the kind of stuff you can learn once you have sensors, and this is how it plays out in other industries. I mean, definitely something that we do at DocSF, I think, quite well is to cross-pollinate these ideas so that we can understand what's plausible, what's possible. When we don't really have familiarity with the technology like this, it's new to us. We know x-rays well, we know CT scans well, but we don't understand sensors inside the system. So what's the special sauce of the salt? What makes you guys so special? I think you've sort of discussed it a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. I think what really separates us, what I like to focus on, and, and as I alluded to earlier, you know, I attribute to the success that we had to the fact that we developed our platform so that disparate disciplines, people from hundreds of people, thousands of people from different organizations, you think about building a commercial jet, people who are working on the engines are not in the same company, even as the person building the tail or the wings mm -hmm. or the cockpit but it all has to come together. They have to be able to collaborate somehow independently in the world against the same reference model, this virtual twin, so that everything they do works together. So that's been at the core of everything we do. And so as we are progressing towards being able to build this virtual human, we're able to bring all of that billions of dollars of investment that we've made to create this infrastructure so that if we take a heart and a lung, we can now put it together in a body and a heart and lung system. We bring knees or muscles together with a brain. So now we can study neurodegenerative diseases and neuromuscular diseases. And so we have this massive infrastructure that was never really designed for medical applications, but it's designed for the way people work. And so my job is bring, to kind of bring those people from the medical profession and in and around it through the platform. And that gives us a massive leg up. So for those that would like to follow up on that call to action, that opportunity to work with you, how could they reach you? Well, uh, happy to respond to emails, probably the easiest way, Stephen.Levine at 3DS. I don't know if we can put that in now. Sure. And this shows us S-T-E-V-E-N dot L-E-V-I-N-E. At three DS. Three, the number three 
the letter D isn't David and the letter S isn't Sam. Correct. Com. Exactly. I think we can do that. So I apologize. I was saying Levine, it's Levine. I stand corrected and I apologize. As a person whose name is frequently mispronounced, I don't really care. You understand. Yeah. I. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for spending time with us today. It was absolutely fascinating, this conversation around how to leverage digital twin technology, or you called it a virtual twin technology and human modeling. And I love the idea of bringing in to play the extraordinary knowledge and experience of 40 years of doing this in the aerospace industry. You're right. And musculoskeletal does lend itself very nicely to a cross collaboration. I certainly have plenty of ideas and things to talk to you about. So thank you for coming to the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco, to being part of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast and for supporting our efforts. And we look forward to continuing this relationship. And I hope that our audience has had interesting thoughts that come from listening to you. So thank you again. The pleasure's mine, and I look forward to really future collaborations and hopefully joining you at DocSF next year. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. If you find the talks as incredibly informative and topical as we did, please do share this podcast with your friends and leave us a nice review on your podcast player of choice. It would mean a lot if you did. 